Today we are going to be in, we're going to start in Matthew 28, and then we're going to jump into Acts 1. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. It'll be on the screen in just a short while as well. Uh, but we welcome you to join along in whatever you may have, Bible, device, and so on. So last week was Easter. It was a great Sunday, and I was so thankful to experience that with you, uh, thankful for the conversations that took place this last week as people reflected back on our time together. Now look at that tree that symbolizes life change, whether that's salvation for the first time or rededication. A number of light bulbs were turned last week. You know, the 14 baptisms that we got to celebrate together, the church that was just packed in both services, and the excitement of Easter, testimonies from Patty and Dom, the, the joy of that. And after Easter, we can go into our week and say, yes, and then it's like, now what? Right? All right, we celebrated, now what? Kind of like coming off of Christmas, right? You have that Christmas high, and then it's this oh, afterwards that you have. So what do you do with that? What do we do in this week after and the second week after Easter? Well, it's something that was experienced within Scripture, too, and Jesus identified it, and Jesus spoke to it. If you remember in Matthew 28, we read verses 1 through 17 last week, where Mary and Mary went to the tomb, and when they went to the tomb, they expected to find death. They expected to find Jesus, who had been crucified. But when he got there, an angel said, nope, he's risen, just like he said. And he says, go tell the disciples, go to Galilee, Jesus is going to be there. And when Jesus appeared to the disciples and Mary and Mary, there was this mixture of worship and doubt. And last week I said that I would probably be on the doubters being like, is this really happening? Is, did Jesus really resurrect from the dead? And I love that Jesus addressed right off the bat the now what? Jesus is saying, I'm resurrected. I did what I said I was going to do. Now this is what you're to do. So in Matthew 28, starting in verse 18, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus is crystal clear in what he has his disciples to do then and to do now. He said, I want you to go make disciples. And not just those people who are close to you. I want you to make disciples of all the nations. And I want you to baptize. I want you to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This outward sign that I've been changed by Jesus. And I want you to teach people to obey me. Everything I've commanded you, I want you to multiply that into others. And he said, you don't have to do this alone. I'm with you. I'm with you. And so as you, as a disciple of Jesus, if you're following Jesus, these are the same things that Jesus calls you to do. Jesus calls you to go to make disciples, calls you to baptize, calls you to teach. And you may be saying, I can't do that. You're not expected to do that on your own. Jesus said that I will be with you, and his spirit will empower us to do these things. And the book of Acts is this dramatic movement from a centralized gathering of disciples to the world. Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. The New Testament really telling the story of Jesus and the story of the church. It follows the first four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That tells the story of Jesus. And then Acts is really the beginning of the church. And it carries on to letters that Paul wrote and others wrote to the church. 
And it is a geographic movement, but it's also a cultural movement. It is going from one people group to the world. That this message is not to be contained in one group, it's to be, con- to be shared with all people. So flip over to Acts, a couple books over. Acts chapter one. And it begins this way. It says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So let's pause for a moment. So he's starting off saying, in my former book. So first of all, who wrote the book of Acts? Luke, I heard it. Someone said Luke. Luke, yep. So Luke wrote a former book. What is Luke's former book? Luke, you guys are so good. Good job. Excellent. So Luke writes Acts. He's also written the gospel of Luke, telling the story of Jesus, what Jesus has done. And he's writing to Theophilus. Now, Theophilus, people debate who Theophilus was. Some people say that he's a Jewish person from Alexandria. Others say he was a Roman governor. Others say it could have been Paul's lawyer. Others say that it could have been a high priest. Others say it is a title of friends of God, so to others that are following Jesus. So there's a lot of debate over that, and that's not the important thing. The important thing is that this book has gone forth to explain where the church came from. How did we get the church? Where, what are its roots and what is it rooted in? So back to Acts chapter one, verse three. After his suffering, Jesus is suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Don't miss that Jesus is resurrected and he's still having meals. Hey, this is a good sign, right? This is a good sign for resurrection. On one occasion, yes. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John was baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of heaven? So Jesus is there with them. He's saying, hey, I know there's still people doubting. I know you may be doubting, you may have your questions, but I want you to know that I'm here. And and Luke is saying the same thing. Jesus showed himself. He, He appeared to many. There's many convincing proofs. But he says, don't go anywhere. You're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then the disciples ask the question of, hey, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel right now? Their mind was still on, hey, if we get a large enough army, if we somehow change the governmental system, then that's when the influence is going to happen. And I know nothing has changed over the last number of years, right? We see this completely the same in so many different ways is, is that it just followers of Jesus just say, hey, if we get this aligned in our system and in our world, or we get this aligned in our country, then everyone's going to follow. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you're missing the point. This is not what it's about. Verse 7, he says, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So Jesus is saying, I have a mission for you, and your mission is to carry on what I've been doing already. And this is how you're gonna do it. You're gonna be empowered by the Spirit of God. You're going to spread this message and people from all the nations are gonna be drawn to it as you go to them. This is the story of Acts. This is what happens in Acts. 
this small group of Jesus followers who are scared in a room somehow spread out to this empire-wide movement and churches start popping up all over the place. Peter ministers locally and then starts to spread out and then ultimately Paul goes on his missionary journeys taking the message of Jesus to Asia and Europe, to Rome where all the nations are represented, this highest level of society in that time. And Luke is very clear, though, that this is not a human movement. This is not an intellectual movement. This is a movement of God, that the Spirit of God is establishing the church. And you're going to see this as we read through Acts. And we have once again invited you into a reading plan and questions that are found in the weekly and also on social media each week that you can take home, you can process on your own or in your community group, whatever it may be. But in the book of Acts, we're going to see that the church has some very distinctive characteristics. In fact, nine of them specifically here. It's first that it's global. I've already mentioned that it's to go to the nations. There's all peoples are welcome. Jews, Gentiles, Samaritans. We're going to see men, women, philosophers, governors, kings that are welcome and represented in this. The church is unified on Jesus. Jesus is that center point of the church that it's founded on. We like to talk about all these other things uh, with church and this is how we define ourselves and this and this and this and this and this and this. No, it's Jesus. Jesus is a unifying reality of why we gather here today. You have all sorts of different jobs and lives and where you live and backgrounds and all sorts of things, but we gather here because of Jesus and we unify because of Jesus. The church is also resurrection-centered. It is all about Jesus' resurrection, not just his death, but the resurrection power that Jesus shared. Another thing is that it's the continuing mission and ministry of Jesus. So what are we to do as a church? Well, we need to be on mission. And we need to minister as Jesus calls us and as Jesus modeled. As I already mentioned, it's humans and God working together. It's not just God doing everything. He wants to bring you into his mission. You are a crucial part of the church of Jesus Christ. Both the capital C church, the universal church, the whole church that follows Jesus, but also the lowercase c church, this local church. I'll never forget someone who said to me, they said, Chris, God has every person in your congregation to accomplish the mission that he wants your church to do. I'm like, ooh, all right, that's good. So what is God doing here with you, with us, in this time? How is he calling you to be a part? The church demands a response. It's not just show up. It demands a response of this repentance and forgiveness, that we're called to be people who have repented from our sin, who have walked away, who stopped justifying sin or explaining away sin, that we've repented from sin and we walk in the forgiveness that Jesus offers. It's a defining factor of the church. That the church is guided by God and his spirit and power. Again, we don't do it on our own. The next one, which everyone just loves, right, is suffering. The church is called to suffer. Anyone love suffering? You just, like this morning, chances like, yeah, yeah, give me some suffering. Is that, no, not at all. No one likes to suffer. And we are surprised when we suffer as human beings, and we're surprised when we're followers of Jesus and we suffer. People have been fed, maybe you've been fed this lie, is that, hey, once you follow Jesus, once you know Jesus, everything's going to be good. Ugh, 
sorry, nope. I've told it before, and it comes to mind every time I talk about suffering, is that when I was um, in college, I was working in Nashville, and my mentor, we were working with a group, of, a youth group that was in town uh, at the ministry we were overseeing. We were hosting them, and the youth pastor came to us and said, most of my kids do not know Jesus. They're just here with friends, and you know, some of them know Jesus, but even those kids are not really following Jesus. And so Dove, my mentor, just said, oh yeah, I'll, I'll take care of it. I'll share the gospel tonight. This is cool. All right, great. And we get there, and he starts to tell these teenagers how hard it is to follow Jesus. All the suffering and hardship and what they'd have to give up and what they'd have to deny and, you know, people wouldn't like them and all these different things. And I'm sitting in the back going, like, no, what are you doing? This is not the soft sell, flowery, rosy, everything's going to be good type of gospel presentation. And I'm just like, oh, man, you messed up. And he said, anyone want to follow Jesus? 20 hands shoot up in the room. Like, sorry, Lord. This is something we're called to, this walking through. And it's not because we like suffering for suffering's sake. It's because we draw near to Jesus in suffering and we hold on. We rest in him. And so if you're walking through something right now, you draw near to Jesus and you hold on. Hold on. The last defining factor that we're going to see here in Acts is that the church is a place of integrity. There's not evidence of wrongdoing. This is so important for the church to do everything it can to maintain this integrity, to walk with this high standard. And in the book of Acts, there's a number of times where there are authorities or people who look at the church that is growing, the followers of Jesus, and although they want to blame them or cast blame or point out things, they just can't find wrongdoing. So we're called to walk with this integrity. And you'll see this as you walk through Acts and we read through Acts. But there's a pattern of this church that's defined by these factors. There's this repeating pattern again and again and again. First, that there's followers of Jesus who proclaim the gospel. There's people who listen to them and then they give their life to following Jesus. They're converted. And then there's opposition and persecution against the church. Then God intervenes and rescues. And then it happens again. Someone else preaches. People are converted, they're oppressed, God rescues. It is this pattern that goes over and over again in Acts. So how did this happen? How do we get there? Verse 12, let's look at this. Acts 1. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from a hill called Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying, and those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, they all joined together constantly in what? Prayer. Constantly in prayer. Along with uh, the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. There they are. This movement of the Spirit, this movement geographically, culturally, the reason we have a gathering here today and around the world is because of And not just prayer in the corner by myself, but prayer together. And waiting in prayer. Jesus told them to wait, and they decided prayer would be the best thing while they're waiting. That is something for us, too, is as we're waiting, whatever it is, we're praying. We're trusting God. 
And this prayer, if you look at chapter two, verse one, results in full-blown glory. Chapter two, verse one says this. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. What do you think they were doing? They're praying. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. A month or two ago, we were talking about how the presence of God is described in Scripture so often as fire. We think of the burning bush where Moses had a conversation with God that was on fire. We think of the pillar cloud that guided the Israelites as God's presence. And here in Acts, this tongue of fire comes and rests above each person. The presence of God himself was with each person. And that Sunday, we talked about what does it mean to be a temple of the Holy Spirit, that we have the presence of God with us. And in verse four, it says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Skipping down to verse 12, or verse 11, they're declaring the wonders of God in their own tongues. In verse 12, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Again, in this situation, a movement of God is, is where there is worship. Remember, there was worship when Jesus returned and there was doubt. Here we have this amazement of worship again and then also people making fun. They must be drunk. The only way we can explain this. And I love Peter's response here in verse 14. Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Why did he add nine in the morning? Does that matter? I mean, like, does that mean in the evening there's possibility? Just saying, no, 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 that's not true, and it's early. They say, this is what happens. Here we go. Verse 16. This is what is spoken of the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, return. It says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And when he's referring to last days, he's talking about that time period between Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' second coming, his return. And so he's saying the last days are before us now. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We skip down a few verses there. Verse 32, it says, God has raised Jesus to life and we are witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Peter's saying, this is what has happened. The spirit of God is with the people. A few more verses unfold. Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter, 
and the other apostles. Brothers, give me another book to read. Brothers, let's sit down and just discuss this. Brothers, I need some more intellect. I need some more knowledge. Brothers, let's, let's just form a class. Brothers, uh, they say, what, what shall we do? It's not an intellectual exercise that following Jesus is. Yes, we have knowledge and we have the word which helps us understand God, but it is so much more. Your maturity is not about how much you know. But how do we respond to what has been shared? Peter says this when they ask this question. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted this message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. A good day, right? Man, amazing. But what did it take? Started in prayer. Started in worship together. The Spirit of God was with them and moving. And the people were called to repent. They're called to be baptized. Go public with their faith. The Spirit was this gift of salvation. In verse 42, it says they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. They were committed. They were locked in to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. There's a devotion to the word of God. There's a devotion to prayer, to being together, to sharing meals, to having all things in common, taking care of one another. The result was daily salvation. Is that the early church was a contrast to the options that people had around them. Not a mere, not just a gathering for a few, few short minutes. The people were a people of presence. People were a people of presence. They were there for one another. The church started because people were present with God and they were present with one another. In our busyness, and I am just as guilty as anyone else sitting in this space, our busyness prevents us from being present. My busyness prevents me from being present with God and with people. Spirit of God was there, prayer was there, the word was there, they were present. In the places that they lived, played, stopped, shared life. What about us as a church? People, 
Are we present in this community or the community that you're in? Are you present in your workplace? Are you present in your school? And the people that you're trying to be present with, is there a notice that you've been present with God? Presence and prayer and life. What I want to invite us to do here as we wrap up our time, and this week to consider, am I present? That's the thing. It just Maybe you want to write that down, put that on a mirror in your car, wherever it may be, is, is am I present this week? Present to God and present to others around me. What I want to do is invite us to be a church that prays. And you're welcome to pray on your own. You can do that. But I'm going to invite you to turn to someone by you or a couple people by you and to spend a few minutes praying together. What are you to pray about? Maybe it's gratitude. Maybe you're grateful for something. Or, or maybe it's forgiveness. Or maybe it's, uh, God, what is your will for me? Help me to walk in your will. I want to be led by your spirit. Maybe it's something totally different. So just in the next few minutes, I invite you to pause, turn to someone or a couple people, and to pray as the spirit leads you to be present to God and present to one another. And then I'll wrap us up in prayer. So would you take a moment? Pray together. Merciful Father, God, may we be a people of presence with you and with others. God, may this day that we've gathered here and the day that we go into be a day of rest, God, for our hearts, God, for our homes. Jesus, we pray that we would continue to be restored into your image. God, I pray that the heaviness of whatever it may be, God, around us would be lightened and that our time would be slowed here today, Lord, in whatever's before us. Lord, may we rest, God, knowing of your greatness, leaning into you. God, may your word feed me this day and the days to come. May your spirit lead me and lead us, God, into this week and in the life that's ahead of us. Jesus, we love you. God, we want to follow after you. Lord, help us to take that next step, whatever that is. Jesus, we love you. I pray this in your name. Amen.